Welcome to the Better Boundaries podcast brought to you by Utahns for a Responsive Government. I'm Katie Wright, Executive Director of Better Boundaries and your host. The goal of this podcast is to keep you informed during the 2021 Utah redistricting process. Today, for our third episode, I'm pleased to have Senator Scott Sandel, co-chair of the Legislative Redistricting Committee. Senator Sandel, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's uh, good to be with you. It's very nice to have you here. So before we dig into redistricting, I'd love our listeners to learn more about you. You represent Senate District 17, and tell us some a, a little bit about your legislative accomplishments. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I actually uh, hail from Box Elder County. Uh, in the Senate, I represent Box Elder County and parts of Tooele and Cache County. So I have a pretty big and diverse district. Um, in the legislature, I began uh, seven. Se- I've been through seven sessions: four in the House, now three in the Senate, and uh, was asked uh, probably 18 months ago now to chair redistricting from the Senate side. Uh, honestly, before COVID, uh, we were expecting a different timeline, and we had made preparations to do uh, some work uh, according to the timeline we're used to. But COVID changed all that and uh, compressed our time schedule. So we're, we're glad to be at work. And uh, I've uh, been very pleased to be in a lot of rural issue uh, things. I farm and ranch full-time for a living. So um, it gives me the opportunity to do a lot of agriculture, uh, legislation, kind of things uh, in rural Utah. Um, also, have, I've been in a few um, other things uh, in, in the legislature with the uh, signs and just uh, a plethora of things I never thought I would be involved in and do, I've been able to do in the legislature. That's Very fan- much enjoy it. That's fantastic. I, I bet you become a, a semi-expert in so many topics that you uh, don't foresee when you're running and first getting into it. Yeah, you do, you, you do not understand the amount of information that comes at you very quickly. And uh, I wouldn't say expert. I wouldn't, you may be a little bit in the journeyman, but not even a semi-expert. Got it, got it. Okay, so you're um, a co-chair of the Legislative Redistricting Committee, and there are 20 total members. So maybe share with us um, who some of those folks are and how they come to serve on that committee. From the Senate side, we have seven. Um, we have uh, five from the Republican Party and two from the Democratic Party. Uh, those were chosen by the president. Um and they come from kind of a, a wide swath across the state. We have Senator Ibsen from down in the south uh, in Washington County. We have Gene Davis um, and Karen Maine from here in Salt Lake Valley. We have Lincoln Fillmore from uh, down in South Salt Lake. Uh, let's see, myself from up north. And uh, we have Mike McHale from Utah County. And Kirk Cullimore from Salt Lake again in on the Senate side. The the House has thirteen members on the committee, and uh, uh, unfortunately, I don't think I can name all of them. I might get messed up. Um, we're, uh, but uh, but we have a, a good diverse group from across the state uh, representing a, a lot of parts of the state. And that's really important, um, as we all know, kind of the difference of rural Utah versus um, the city and or in suburban areas and different economics like ranching and extractive industries and tourism. So it's great to have that diversity of geography represented on the committee. So the Legislative Redistricting Committee is a tremendous 
on a task to take on. Um, and I appreciate so much the time that everyone on the committee is putting in. So just, you know, give us an idea of how it's going. How's it progressing in this unusual year with census data yeah, um, sen delayed? Census data delayed, uh, compressed our timeline. Uh, we're four public meetings through our uh, vigorous schedule. Uh, tonight we meet in Rose Park. Uh, next week, we go to uh, southern Utah, Cedar City and St. George. The 1st of October, we take a swing through eastern Utah and finish back up in Clearfield and then at the Capitol. Uh, we'll probably, um, by, by mid-October, we will have concluded our kind of uh, course around the state. And the 1st of November, we look forward to uh, hearing the report from the Independent Redistricting Commission. Um, and then we'll take all that information and bring it together and as a committee, we'll uh, meet again, oh, probably tenth, uh, ninth, eighth, ninth, and tenth of November. Try to come up with a map, a couple of the maps that we will try to to uh, present to the legislature um, after after we've tried to put all that together. And it is a condensed schedule, but uh, the people on the committee have been more than willing to put in the time and effort to make that happen in eight weeks rather than six months. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. And uh, of course, happening across the nation that everyone is dealing with this compressed um, time schedule. So you mentioned the Independent Redistricting Commission, obviously Better Boundaries had a big role in getting that into formation. But for folks out there who are still trying to sort out, okay, we have a legislative committee, we have an independent commission, what are the differences? What are the similarities? How would you describe it to them? Yeah, with uh, Proposition 4, um, I think both sides kind of came to the conclusion that, that there may be some legal issues with Prop 4, and, and the legislature met with better boundaries. I was not a part of, the, of that team that met, but they decided that they would uh, create a kind of a parallel paths for the legislative committee and the independent redistricting commission to visit sites out in, in across the state, take public input, and create maps that then the the uh, independent commission would return and, and bring those maps that they have. Um, and then by our constitutional duty in the legislature, uh, we have to then adopt a map for each of the four categories that we're responsible for by constitution. And uh, that was kind of how that came about. And uh, we look forward to seeing what the report is. We, uh, we've chosen to visit uh, kind of different cities at least in the state, give people as much opportunity as they can to give public input. And uh, so far our meetings have gone good. That We've received uh, some really good suggestions of things that I actually hadn't thought about yet. Uh, one of those being a state school board map that may be inclusive of uh, LEAs. In other words, not break up a, a school district on a, on a boundary, but include those. And it might mean that our our numbers might not be exact on each of the 15 school districts, but um, it's an option that we're make, we're looking at that was actually brought to us in uh, a meeting on Monday, I believe it was, from uh, just just a person that had a lot of interest in schools, and so we thought that was a great we thought it was a, a great nugget to take away from that meeting. Yeah, that that's really interesting, and and of course, in all of redistricting, you know, the most important constitutional requirement is one person, one vote. So you're only allowed. Um, some variance in population size of the various districts. But what I'm hearing you say is considering maybe more variance when it comes to the state school board to allow school districts to stay intact. Is that, you know, what you're considering or thinking? Of? Yeah, the courts have, have pretty much made it clear that in the congressional mapping, that one person, one vote is clearly the standard. 
And so we have adopted 0.1% on our variance. And I, I think we would assume that we're going to drive that even lower than the 0.1%, which would be somewhere around 18 or 800 people. Um, we're, we're, we'll be much tighter than that. In the other three maps, the courts have allowed that you have to have substantial equality. And they have, over time, indicated that that is plus or minus 5% from your target. So if, if a Senate district is um, 112,000, uh, you can be within 5% up or down of that. And the courts will allow that based on other factors. And that, that would flow over into this discussion about the school board. Rather than trying to make them exactly equal in population, there may be a consideration that you might be able to move um, 1,000 people in this district and maintain a whole LEA. And that's where you get the, the idea that you might have some variance. Yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting commentary and just shows the learning process that you get when you get this great public input and diversity of ideas. So um, for our listeners, you know, the criteria that the legislative committee will adhere to is different than what is set out by the statute created by Prop 4 um, for the independent commission. Can you talk a little bit about the criteria that um, rises to the top of your priorities? Yeah, we, uh, we met in... Uh before we got the data as a legislative committee and adopted those criteria. Um, obviously, they begin with the uh, or the initial standard is population deviation. I mean, that's, that's kind of the top thing. Everybody has to look at that. Beyond that, it's uh, continuity and it's uh, contiguous, compact and contiguous. Uh, then there is some leeway in kind of what you may determine is your next set. Do you look at political subdivisions as being... Uh, cause for drawing a boundary line? Do you look at a geographical feature as a mountain or a river? Uh, all of those things will become part of a criteria, but they may not override some other criteria. Obviously, we can't, in certain cir- circumstances, override uh, our, our number one criteria with, with the numbers just because there's a river that runs through here or because I-15 goes down a certain corridor. But But we would hope that we could stay along some of those boundary lines uh, as much as possible. The one difference that uh, I think is is there, people should know about it, is uh, the legislative committee uh, determined that we would place incumbents, incumbency, um, and their at least their uh, address in their census block for the public to be able to see. So you can draw in and around an incumbent, you can ignore that. You don't have to have that layer on there. But I, my co-chair and I, Paul Ray, discussed this at length and finally concluded that as a legislative committee, we know where our colleagues live pretty much. And it would seem unfair for us to draw whether we consciously ad- adhere or know to where they live or, or subconsciously do it. I think there will be some regard for that. And the public should know that as well. If you have a legislator that, that you really like and you want to keep and you want to draw a map, you can draw that legislature back in, in your map, and that can be, become part of your pri- criteria simply because you know the census block in which he or she lives. Yeah, I'm glad you raised this. This is, you know, a big difference between the two, the committee and the commission, whereas the independent commission is not going to know where um, 
where incumbents live and also has a criteria that requires them not to favor, you know, a party over another. Um, whereas the legislative committee has made that decision. You've been pretty clear about that. Um, my question is, are people asking during public input, are they talking about incumbency? Is that something you're hearing from committee members or not really? We have not heard a comment yet that I can remember about incumbency. And that does uh, surprise me a little bit, but it, it seems to be that people who have attended the meetings, that, that has not been their priority. Interesting. Okay, so um, kind of shifting back to the idea of keeping districts similar population, you know, as I stepped into this role, um, the thing I heard first and, and kind of know, of course, as a Utahan in general, is this really, you know, big fear among rural Utahans that they're losing representation and losing voice. And we, you know, we know districts have to be a specific size. And so if you live in a sparsely populated area, your district has to be bigger to have enough population. But tell me, as someone who represents a rural area of Utah, you know, how you approach this to make sure that rural Utahans and suburban or urban Utahans have representation. How do you tackle that? Um, let, let me start with the congressional side of that. Um, over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've had a number of maps that have been developed. We have some that include both rural and urban. We have some that just say, no, let's just do a congressional map that has urban districts and then do one big one for the, for the rural part of the state. Um, I, I do believe that, uh, that there's reasons for both, but I, but, but I, in the back of my mind, concern that because 66% of our state is owned by the federal government and most of our drinking water comes from lands or originate on lands that the federal government owns, and even our rural areas recreate in our urban areas to a great degree, um, that it probably might be a consideration to, to have some representation from urban and rural in each of those so that we have Congress people that understand both sides and they hear have to have to uh, adhere to both sides a little bit between our urban and our rural. I think it's a binding moment for our state uh, rather than a dividing moment. And uh, so what, whatever map we adopt or not, I, I do think that, uh, that we've heard both sides. We've heard both of those voices. And uh, I, I think that'll be a way that possibly we align urban and rural together in our state house districts it becomes much harder because they are geographically smaller if you have a hard a large population you'll draw a district that you can walk from one end to the other in three to five minutes in a senate district you'll have some that you can bicycle in three to five minutes and they're simply not going to move outside of an urban kind of environment other than that we have districts that have to pick up some urban population just to meet the requirement uh, of a rural population. We'll have, we'll, I'm certain we'll have a district that runs down the east side of the state of Utah just to pick up enough numbers that could go from Utah County down to the, er, down to the four corners. Of course, you have the argument on the other side that that's the role of senators who, of course, are elected at large, of, you know, and that their role is really to represent the diversity of an entire state because they're elected by an entire state. But certainly with the legislative committee and the independent commission, you're hearing that voice of how can rural Utahns have a voice? And I, and I think that as you move into the more urban areas for your meetings, we're going to hear that from, you know, for instance, Ogden the other night as well of how can we have you know, a, a collective voice. Um, so interesting tensions to manage and what makes redistricting a very um, difficult task. So um, 
One of the things that the legislative committee is asking, and it was fun to see some of these maps presented last night, is for citizens to go on, use this great mapping technology, and create maps for the whole state, and then present them to the legislative committee. So can you just talk about a little bit about how a, a normal citizen might go about this and what you're learning from those sort of map um, maps that are being presented? Yeah, from the from the uh, Legislative Redistricting Committee, you can log on to our website at uh, redistricting.utah.gov, and you just click the button that says Recreate Maps, and you create a user account and log in, and then you can begin. There are uh, some pre-loaded templates if you want to, to create from grounds from zero, from a blank page, you can do that. If you want to start from the current districts, you can do that as well. And then as you draw, as you move the cursor around and begin to understand a little how the program goes, you can reassign populations down to the census block into new districts or create districts. And automatically that begins to calculate how many people you have assigned to each of those areas. And there are layers in there that will let you know where city boundaries are, county boundaries, um, existing districts, uh, incumbents. There are a myriad of tools that you can use in there. The one interesting piece that uh, our legal team has uh, has come up with is uh, we are not we are actually prohibited from using race or race data at this point. An interesting function of that is that the courts have ruled again that if you can create a minority, uh, a majority minority district where a minority of of color, race, or language lives that has not been able to elect someone of a candidate of their choice, uh, you don't, in fact, cannot, you have to prohibit the use of race in your data. So we have pulled all of the, the just legally, our, our legal team has, has asked us to pull all of our race data um, out of the programming. Yeah, and, and thank you for mentioning that. So, you know, we talked earlier about the two, um, you, you know, constitutional requirements across the nation when it comes to redistricting. Uh, there's a, a few more, of course, you must use census data and these sort of mm -hmm. things, but the one person, one vote is very critical. And then, of course, some of the um, parts of the Voting Rights Act, which you've just mentioned, and which get a little complex because if you have the ability to create a majority minority district, you must, but if you don't, then you can't use data. So it, it there's some nuance into it. It, it, and, it, is and, an, it is nuanced. And quite honestly, our legal team spent uh, quite a few hours and they found that only in the Rose Park area could could that district exist. And I think it was because of uh, Spanish language, um, but uh, be, because they have elected Luz Escamilla, um, then it's like we have to eliminate all race data because we could only do that in one spot. And they have actually elected someone who uh, is is Spanish speaking. I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And and comes back to, you know, the, the purpose of um, Proposition 4, four of course, was to reduce the harmful impacts of gerrymandering. But gerrymandering in itself is a very big term. There can be racial gerrymandering 
gerrymandering, partisan gerrymandering. I mean, there's many ways to gerrymander a map. So it's a it's a loose terminology that has to be narrowed down through the use of criteria and data and other considerations. Um, so early in the process, the legislative committee um, said that they wouldn't use the criteria of communities of interest. Now, that is a criteria that the independent commission must consider. What I have noticed listening to the hearings and, and the public input is that citizens getting up, talking about maps that they've drawn or how they want to be represented are using the term communities of interest. So how has that evolved in your thinking or you know, how would you take that concept of community of interest and how do you think you'll apply it in maps moving forward? Um, we didn't actually uh, adopt a community of interest standard in the agenda simply because there isn't a really good definition. Um, everyone has a different de definition of what a community of interest is. To me, it might be people that go to church together, and someone else, it might be people that speak the same language. And those could easily be both communities of interest that overlap, and the definition just did not come down to anything that was very clear to us. But people do use that term in whatever context they believe it exists in, but it's really, really hard to define. So it's really hard to map around what a community of interest is because it, it, the definition can change and move more than a political subdivision. That boundary doesn't change. And, and the, you know, a river, a mountain, those kind of things don't change as far as criteria, but uh, communities of interest that uh, that's very personal, personally defined. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. That's an interesting um, observation. It's certainly at the Independent Commission, they're taking input, asking people to draw community of interest maps and overlaying that as a data set. Um, but it is pretty, it is personal. It's coming from a citizen like this is who I view my community to be versus something that can come from the top down. Um, so other, I, I would love to hear your observations about other things you're learning through the public input process and maybe give tips to people who aren't necessarily ready to jump in and draw a whole statewide map, but do want to give input to the committee. You know, first of all, what are you learning from, um, public input? And second, what are tips for people who want to come give you some public input? What we're learning from public input is you, you'll find, like I described, these kind of nuggets that people bring to you, and you're like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. The state school board comes to mind r really a lot. Um, the, uh, the other parts, uh, you just appreciate the passion that people come when they come. Uh, the, the meetings have been, have been very, very good as far as people's de decorum and demeanor, it's been very amiable. We've learned a lot. We've been able to ask questions. And I really, really appreciate the, the way people have responded when they come. I do think that there's a hesitancy sometimes. I remember the first time that I stepped up on the Capitol and testified before a, a committee, a House committee. I was scared to death. I'm like, oh, my goodness, who are these people? And I'm just, I just almost couldn't spit because my mouth was so dry. And, and I see some of these people who are in the audience who are hesitant because it seems pretty formidable sometimes to, to step up to the microphone and talk to elected officials. Uh, my tip is, is don't be worried about it. We're, we're just citizens. We're just people who are, who are in public service and uh, come to the meeting and, and express 
what it is that you want to express and we're not going to think anything of you other than just thank you. Um, the other thing is, as you begin to draw those maps, what you'll first realize is that it's very easy to draw the first district. The first lines that you put out there are really easy. Wait till you get to the 10th and 12th and 15th line as that wave moves across your map to try to make everything fit together. There's 71,000, over 71,000 census block pieces in the state of Utah that fit together to make each one of those four maps. You can divide all the way down to those census blocks. You can't divide a block, but you can divide two of them. And it becomes really complex as you move one line. The next line has to move, and then the next line has to move. And districts have to get smaller towards the southwest corner of Salt Lake and the west side of Utah County. They get, and they get smaller in the corner of Washington County, and the rest of the districts have to increase somewhere in geographic size just because those areas grew proportionally faster than anywhere else in the state. So you can begin on the edges and move in, or you can be again on the, in the middle and, and move out. But when you get to the edge and you've moved out, if your districts don't have the right amount of people, you have to come back to the center and start again. So my tip is start from the edges and move in because then you know you've accumulated enough people in each district. Yeah, that's that's a good tip, and you know, the, I think the metaphor people have been or I've heard a lot now is uh, squeezing a, a tube of toothpaste. It's got to come out somewhere, is is what I've been told. Um, well, last question for you: You and nineteen other lawmakers are dedicating a huge amount of time, effort, and expertise to redistricting. Um, you mentioned the public hearings you're holding across the state, and I hope people will listen in and participate. So in, in your own words, why is this decennial process so important and foundational to democracy? First of all, you, you mentioned uh, earlier that the one person, one vote is essential for what we do in our republic. If we were not redistricting, eventually you would have the opportunity to have one senator in the, in, in the state Senate that would possibly represent a million people and one senator that would represent a thousand people. And that would not be very conducive to good government. And 10 years uh, seems to be about the right amount of time to go in between cycles. Uh, 15 years would seem, especially the way our state is growing, way, way too long. And five years, I don't think you'd get anybody to volunteer to do it every five years. <laughs> because it is very time consuming. I, I think I'm spending about four days a week doing it. And, uh, and we're, we'll spend the time that we need to do to get it done. But without this process, um, I, I think our democracy would weaken over time. Thank you, Senator Sandal, for your time today and for your service. I appreciate it. And listeners, if you can believe it, we've only had the census data the backbone of the redistricting process for a handful of weeks. And yet we see Utahns from across the state submitting maps, attending meetings, and having their voices heard in the redistricting process. I'm Katie Wright, your host and executive director of Better Boundaries Utah. Tune into episode four to hear from Senator Sandals co-chair, Representative Paul Ray, next time. And thank you for listening. <laughs>